If you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We looked at this passage um, earlier in this series on the vices. Um, In some ways it will be a jumping off point, but we will come back to a central theme in these verses later in the sermon. Matthew chapter 6, the first six verses. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, secret, will reward you. We've been looking at the vice of vain glory. And one of the problems in studying this vice is that we might be tempted to see it as simply, that's the way people are today. That people today are vain. Um, they, they want to be known. Uh, the internet makes it possible. Facebook makes it possible. All forms of social media um, make it possible for us to put our best face forward and for us to be seen as something other than what we are. But the vice of vainglory is not simply the way things are. It is a vice that plagues the Christian life and the Christian church in general. That's why we're looking at it. We saw several weeks ago that in order to understand vainglory, we need to understand what glory is. And Aquinas defined it as goodness that is displayed, which means that people recognize something good, and they recognize its attractiveness and desirability, and so they express approval and praise. And so it is glory. And glory can be good, as we saw earlier in the series, when it is sought for God's sake and it is directed to him. It becomes vain glory when, in fact, glory is sought for one's own self, that I want, in a sense, to be glorified. And there is no reference to God. If glory is good and excellent, then this puts vainglory in an entirely different light. It isn't simply the way people are. It is something that is not good or something that is not excellent. It is something that is wrong. Vainglory comes from two words, as we've seen. Glory, I think we get that part, or we imagine that we do. But vain, we may have forgotten, it is that which is empty by nature. And so it is empty glory, if you wish. If good things are worthy of glory, then vain things or empty things which lack goodness, they are not worthy of glory. It is They are vainglorious. We may seek glory for vain or empty reasons, or we may in fact seek glory in vain. That is, it is something that we have not achieved. Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Vainglory, the Forgotten Vice, which as I've said has been really enlightening for me and invaluable, refers to vainglory as an AAA vice. That is, attention, affirmation, and applause, or acknowledgement, approval, and adulation. 
We saw last week that there are two roots to this tree that we would call vainglory. One is very obvious, pride. The second one, I think much less so, and that is fear. With regard to pride, oftentimes we confuse the two. We think that pride and vainglory are the same, when in fact they are not. Pride is about position and power. That is, a person believes that they are better than everyone else, and since they walk into the room and they just have a sense that I'm better than you all, if you wish. Vainglory wants attention. One could argue that a proud person doesn't necessarily want attention. They simply are convinced that they're better than everyone else. And if you all don't acknowledge it, well, that just proves my point that I am better than all of you. Whereas a vainglorious person, they want to be noticed. They want to be recognized. They want to be liked, if you wish. They want a lot of friends on Facebook. They want people to look at them. It is about displaying oneself and being accepted as being worthy of acknowledgement. The prideful person desires to be greater than others. The vainglorious person wants other people's applause and notice. Whether they are better than other people or not, not the issue. They simply want to be noticed. In going through this and reviewing and preparing for today, I think I've come to the conclusion that vainglory is the lazy person's alternative to pride. See, a proud person may in fact be very good at what they do. And that's why they're proud. I'm good at what I do. I'm better than anyone else at what I do. A vainglorious person, they know they're not good at what, but they want to be noticed. So rather than working hard to excel, they simply try to put up a front. And again, it's a lazy person's way to pride or alternative to pride. Um, I'm not really going to put out a lot of effort at becoming better at a certain thing. I just want people to notice me. And so I'll do whatever I need to do in order to get people to notice me. So that's pride and vainglory. But what about fear? Fear is something that doesn't seem to belong with vainglory. Fear is for those who are glory needy. They need to be noticed. It's almost a pathology with them. They need to be recognized and applauded by others. They don't have much in and of themselves, but they don't want other people to know it. And so because they are fearful and insecure, they keep trying to put up a front, building a facade, crafting an image that this is who I am. Aren't I wonderful? Look at me. I'm great. Please pay attention to me. Because deep down they are afraid that if people knew who they really were, they would not like them at all. Vainglory of the prideful type is a show-off vice. Vainglory of the fearful type is a cover-up vice. I don't want people to know who I really am. And therefore, I try to maneuver, try to create certain scenarios in which I come off looking much better than in fact I am. At this point, I think in our study of vainglory, it should be clear that there are two types of vainglory. One which is shallow, and perhaps we've spent more time on this, and so maybe the second one might not be so apparent. This is less self-aware, this is less mature, this is immature if you wish. So it's about appearance, it's about seeking glory, you know, superficial recognition, it's about basically faking it. That you're not really good at anything, but you want to be noticed as though you, in fact, might be perceived to be. 
I think in some ways we might be stuck in that particular rut of looking at vainglory as shallow. But the Lord willing, we'll see this next Sunday, there is the vainglory for those who are mature. For those, in fact, who are self-aware, who recognize who they are, and in many ways have become better on some level than the rest of us. They have grown up, they have matured, they've developed spiritually. And that is where vainglory can come in in a, in a very deceptive way and turn their eyes away from God. It is interesting that those who are shallow in their vain gloriousness, if you wish, may in fact be more truthful than people who are mature. That the hypocrisy, I think, is not seen so much in the shallow as it is seen in those who are deeper and more mature. As we study the vices, we've looked at sloth and now we're looking at vainglory, we need to recognize that these vices have children. They have offspring vices that come out from them. So, for example, looking at greed. Greed has children. Some are quite obvious. Theft, fraud, robbery. In other words, people are greedy and so they want to acquire more things and they'll do whatever it ha- they have to to get it. But the less obvious... Uh, There's a certain restlessness. I think when we are greedy, we're just not content. And so in our minds, in our lives, we're just restless. There's also a callousness. We don't really care about other people or their needs. And ultimately, there's a discontentment. We're just not happy with the way that our lives are. These are the children that come from the vice of greed. With greed, I think there's a focus on material things and the desire to possess them and to control them. All vices have children. These children are symptoms, I would argue. They're symptoms of the main problem, which is, if you wish, the mother vice. Um, Just because we have the symptoms doesn't mean we have the disease. But if we have the symptoms, perhaps we need to sit down and take stock of where we are and see what place that vice has in our lives. So, we're talking about the vice of vainglory. What are the children of vainglory? We can put them in two categories. The first are those which directly seek glory. That is, we want glory, and so directly there is this desire to pursue it. You see this in boasting. You see this in hypocrisy. You see this in the presumption of novelties. Boasting is when we exaggerate our good qualities in word. Hypocrisy is when we pretend to have good qualities, and others will think well of us, because of our deeds. And presumption is, I think, the idea of the phenomenon of having the latest and the greatest and the newest and the most outrageous thing to produce amazement and attract attention. So this is when we are directly seeking glory. The second is when we seek glory indirectly. Rather than seeking approval, we just are trying to avoid the disapproval of others. It's not so much about us being great, we just don't want to be seen as not good. So here we see obstinacy or stubbornness, contention, discord, and disobedience. These are, if you wish, a reactive Uh, strategy. This is how we react towards situations because we don't want people to think badly of us. It's not that we want them to think great of us, 
that would be, I think, the first category. It's just we don't want them to think badly of us. In obstinacy or stubbornness, we habitually insist on our own judgment that we know better than everyone else. So it concerns our opinions and what we tend to think. In discord, we tend to refuse to agree with those who are wiser than us. We simply assume we know better than everyone else. This concerns our will. But these two, I think, start in the heart. They start inside. It is the second two that come out. Contention, where we are always confrontational, and disobedience, when we refuse to do what we are told to do because we are not willing to acknowledge that somebody has authority over us. In fact, in our generation, authority has become a dirty word. We don't want anyone to be the boss of us. As my sister used to say when we were younger. Um, so here, we aren't seeking to be great. We simply don't want to be bad. And as a result, we become stubborn, uh, contentious, and disobedient. Once I think we begin to see these things or recognize, we become aware with these things, we recognize them or we see them easily everywhere. Suddenly, it's like somebody turns a light on and we're like, ah, that's what that is. That act of disobedience is, in fact, a form of vainglory. That boasting, that I think we would understand as a form of vainglory. But what about stubbornness? What about causing problems, discord and contention? The most obvious case, I think, is that of hypocrisy, which we find in our text today. And this is an important issue, and I, bear with me because I hope that I make it uh, plain. Uh, but when we practice virtues, hypocrisy is something that is there. And let me see if I can explain. De Young asks the question in her book, can learners ever master virtue without faking it until they make it? In other words, we are called by the Lord Jesus to follow him. We are to be full of faithfulness. We are to be full of goodness and patience, perfection and virtue. And by the way, if you still have your Bibles open, we read the first six verses of chapter six. Look at the last verse of chapter five. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, it's just not possible. It's just not possible. So what do we do? Do we simply stop? Do we just say, that's it, I give up? This is the goal. This is what I'm striving for. And here I am. One might even say light years away. I'm so far. But should I pretend as though I am faithful? As though I am loving? As though I am compassionate? Because if I'm here and this is the goal, I shouldn't act like I'm here. So am I being a hypocrite? We live in the gap between what we are told to do and where we are. And the question is, are we being hypocritical while we live in the gap? 
Are we hypocrites because this is what we aim to be? And the reality is quite different. We are far away from what Jesus has called us to do. Let's stop a minute. Hypocrisy is bad, right? Hypocrisy is a bad thing. It would seem to be what Jesus says here in our text. If we, in fact, claim to be doing something good, a virtuous action, um, are we also saying that there's a virtuous motive behind it? I'm doing a good thing because in my heart I believe it's a good thing and therefore I'm doing it. But what if, in fact, we are doing a good thing, but what's in our hearts is less, less than what it should be? That's deceptive, isn't it? That's hypocrisy, isn't it? Isn't that immoral? But let's stop a minute before we go too far. What if a blanket condemnation of hypocrisy, in fact, threatens to taint and complicate the necessary workings of good moral formation? Let's see if I can explain. We stand between action and motive and moral education. The difference is acting according to virtue and acting from virtue. Think of a child. Child does not want to share his or her toys with friends, with other children. And so the parents say to the child, if you share your toys, I will give you a piece of candy. And so then the child shares his or her toys. Um, the child is acting generously, but not from a generous disposition. The child is sharing because there's a bribe involved from the parents saying, if you share, then I will give you a reward. Only when one acts generously does one have the virtue of generosity. Or because we have the virtue of generosity, we act generously out of a heart of generosity. Then we have integrity and sincerity. The question is, how do you get to that point? After all, we are by nature selfish and self-centered. We are fallen. We have to be taught how to be generous. And this teaching, this education, comes in stages. It isn't as though I could stand up here and say to you all, be generous. And suddenly we would all be generous for the rest of our lives and share with those in need. Um, there are, in fact, stages that we go through. There are motives that drive our actions. So you may, in fact, have three children. And each of the child or each of the children is, in fact, sharing his or her toys. But they may come from entirely different motives. The most basic is a fear of punishment where the parent says, if you don't share your toys, I'll take them away or I will spank you. The second stage is where there is a fear of shame and love of honor. That is to say, the child wants to be generous because he or she fears that the parents will say, I'm ashamed of you. I'm ashamed that you are not willing to share. And so the child wants to share because he or she does not want to hear those words from the parent. The third child, in fact, though, may be giving, may be sharing out of a heart of generosity. After a lot of practice, after a lot of teaching, the child has come to love giving generously. 
doesn't happen automatically. The child goes through these various stages. Think of a child learning to play the piano. And I can speak of this, but I, don't, I never got to the final stage. Okay? I took piano lessons for I don't know how many years. Actually, I do know, but I'm embarrassed to tell you because you'd think I'd be a concert pianist at this point. Um, the first stage is where you learn the scales and you learn basic songs. Okay? Um, the second stage, I think, is when the child or even an adult, after taking lessons for a while, begins to have an awareness of, oh, this is what it should sound like. This is what good music sounds like. And the final stage is when the child or the adult has developed a love of music and is willing to practice and do what is necessary because there is a love of playing the piano. There may be the fear of punishment at the beginning stages. Certainly know about that. There's also, the second stage, the issue of shame and honor. That is, when you mess up, you get embarrassed, you know what it's supposed to sound like, and so when it doesn't sound good, so you want to practice so that it will, in fact, sound good. But then the final stage is where there is this virtue, this love of music, and saying, I love doing this. This is what I love to do. In today's world, I think oftentimes the focus is more on pleasure than honor. Honor is not something that is, I think, really big in our society. I want to be careful because I would say honor lowercase h. That is where people recognize you and you become a celebrity. Um, but you haven't really done anything worthwhile. A more mature person wants to be an honorable person. Whether other people honor them or not, they want to be honorable. So, if in fact this is where we are, and here is the goal, we are to follow Jesus and we are so far away, what in fact are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to talk about shame and honor? Are we supposed to talk about the approval or disapproval from others? And if we do, doesn't that allow for a certain form of hypocrisy to come in? Let me ask you a, a tricky question. Is hypocrisy a necessary stage in progressing toward virtue? Going from here to here, is hypocrisy one of the things that gets us to our goal? N.T. Wright, in his book, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters, addresses this concern, this worry about hypocrisy. And in part, he's talking to Christians who really criticize formality and faking it, if you wish. You know, following God's rules, being Christ-like, when we don't feel like it. So, if I don't feel like being compassionate, if I don't feel like being generous, but then I, then I am generous, am I just being a hypocrite? Am I, am I just completely faking it? There are those Christians, in fact, who would say, yes, I know that my heart is completely messed up. My motives are, are skewed. They're terrible. I will ask for forgiveness. But, in fact, I'm going to get rid of the. I'm just going to opt out of the program. I'm not going to try to reach this goal because I know how messed up I am. And this is what N.T. Wright says. 
We often use the phrase putting on, of course, in terms of people pretending to be something they are not. The phrase putting it on is a bit of a sneer. You're just putting it on, we say to someone apparently feigning deep emotion. You don't really feel like that. Our culture soaked in romanticism and existentialism is quick to spot and laugh at hypocrisy. But he goes on to point out that it is a mistake to condemn every form of hypocrisy. How else do we understand the Apostle Paul when he commands the church in Colossae to put on the new self? In Colossians chapter 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's in the ESV. The NIV says, clothe yourselves. And then he gives us a list of just daunting virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, patience, gentleness. He goes on to say, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You see, when we act with compassion, when we act with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, when we put on love, we are in fact not necessarily being hypocritical. What we are saying is, here's the goal This is where I am. And by God's grace, I'm moving step by step by step. In some ways, we will always be hypocritical until Jesus comes back. Because what we should be doing, and in fact, perhaps what we are doing, and what our motives should be, aren't always in sync. They're not always on the same page. Instead, we are like a child learning to play the piano. Back here, we are still learning scales. We're still doing basic songs. We don't really even have an ear for it. We don't really appreciate that it is, in fact, music. But as time goes on, we progress. In the same way, we are supposed to love one another, and it may not be until years later that we come to say, that's what that is. I am to do things out of a heart of love. In the process of moral formation, we deliberately practice actions that we endorse. We do something even though we may not feel like it. We help those in need even though we may not want to. We are to practice humility even though in our hearts we may think ourselves better than others. It's a learning process. It's not something that is to be morally alarming. It's like, wait a minute, what a hypocrite you are. You say one thing, but in your heart it's something else. It is a process of learning. It is transformation by imitation. But then again, wait a minute, Damon. If, if I'm imitating someone, am I not being a hypocrite? I'm not being me. I'm not being the real me. To be transformed by imitation is not available to a person who is seeking authenticity. Because the real you is probably not very good. And if you want to change, then you're going to have to admit that and by God's grace be imitators of Christ. To complain that to do something because you have to doesn't sound real or sincere is to miss the point of education. 
moral education, or any education for that matter. If you already know something, then why do you have to be taught it? Why do you have to be educated? It's precisely because the old you doesn't know something that the new you has to learn it. I remember some years ago, um, I had a student uh, at UCLA who came to me after the first day of class. It was a seminar. And he said, um, I, I think maybe I should drop your class. And I said, why is that? He said, I, I know absolutely nothing about Southeast Asia. That's what I teach. I'm like, yeah, that's why you're taking the class. You're taking the class so you can learn about Southeast Asia. And somehow, I guess it made sense to him. He stayed in the class. But the idea that somehow I'm going to take this class because I know everything about it makes no sense. Education is about learning something. And in a real sense, going from an old version of you to a different, a new version of you, in which now you know these things. In the same way, when we first become Christians, there are things that we do. We don't understand why. Or there may be things that we don't do that we should. And as we grow, as we go through a process, we mature. We would not expect, we would not expect a first grader to know how to do algebra. We would not. There are certain expectations we have for a first grader. They don't match what we expect of other people. In the same way as God's people, as we are growing, we need to recognize, here's the Lord Jesus. He is our example. That's what we're shooting for. In the meantime, I'm going to do what I've been told to do. My heart may not always agree. My heart may rebel and say, I don't want to do that. But in fact, we do it and we're not being hypocritical. We are, in fact, going through a process of being formed. We're going through for formal or moral formation. If you want to be completely consistent with who you are, then you're probably not going to change. It is when we recognize that there is something missing, that there is something wrong, that we are not like the Lord Jesus, that in fact we begin to change. For those of you who have done any teaching or working with children at all, you notice that you offer encouragement to someone for where they are. So, with a first grader, if they you know, they have this eureka moment when they figure out that one plus one is two. You encourage them. You don't say, that's nothing. Wait till you get later on in algebra and calculus and this is nothing. You encourage them where they are. Are you rewarding hypocrisy? No. This is where they are. They're first graders. Uh, and the time will come when they will learn how to do subtraction and then multiplication and division and at each step of the way, you encourage them. And if you wish, you praise them. Is this hypocrisy? Because you're praising someone for being down here? No, this is where they are. And we should recognize that as such. We need to recognize that moral formation in the life of the Christian is a process. And we need to recognize that failure need not be fatal. We are told in Proverbs 24, for though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity.
That is to say, we make mistakes. We recognize that. And by the grace of God, we get back up. We don't create this facade of an image that once it is shattered, can't be put back together. We are human beings, flesh and blood, and we make plenty of mistakes. We sin. There is oftentimes a disconnect between what we are doing and what we are thinking, what's in our hearts. But by God's grace, we are learning and we are growing. We're not faking it. We genuinely want to be compassionate. We do want to be humble. We do want to be kind and gentle and patient. That's what we're aiming for. But it's a process. And in the process, we may stumble quite a bit. Uh, I don't know if you've been able to follow thus far, but you, you might be wondering, Damon, are you saying that there is not real hypocrisy? Because Jesus condemns hypocrisy in our text. No, there absolutely is real hypocrisy. Where a person has an awareness that, in fact, they're doing something and they have no, no desire whatsoever to have the true motive behind it. How do we recognize the difference between, if you wish, bad hypocrisy and, if you wish, good hypocrisy? I think by recognizing that our aims will, in fact, determine how we self-disclose. In our text, what Jesus says is that the person who is a hypocrite in our text aims to be known and shown as a pious person when in fact they are not at all and really don't care to be a pious person. They simply want to be seen as a pious person. The true disciple takes the opposite tack, which means painfully we may expose our own fumblings we lack up, we own up to the lack of integrity oftentimes in our lives, but we want to be like Jesus. We screw up all the time, but we recognize that in fact this is what we want to do. A bad hypocrite, if you wish, has no desire whatsoever to be like Jesus, but wants to be seen by other people as being pious. I think Hypocrisy in its bad sense and moral formation in the good sense both um, lack inner substance. But that's okay. Because the person who is seeking to become like Christ is seeking by God's grace to have inner substance. The hypocrite doesn't care. The hypocrite just wants to be seen as someone who is worth noting. Truthful self-presentation is essential to the process. Unlike a hypocrite who covers up his or her failures, the disciple is truly trying to become the person he or she projects. And when we speak of being truthful, we don't simply mean what you say. We're talking about the way that you live and your actions. Lack of truthfulness can be seen in two ways, over-communication and under-communication. If you wish, exaggerating yourself, talking too much, and the other is under communication, staying silent, when in fact maybe you should say something. But we don't say something because you're afraid that people will look down on you. Why is it that we want to be seen by other people in a certain way? Well, in a word, what we've been looking at, vainglory. The very real danger with vainglory in this dastardly form of hypocrisy 
is that after a while, we begin to believe the lie itself. Did the Pharisees really think that they were pious? I'm convinced that they did. I think after a while, they began to believe the facade that they had put up about themselves. And in many ways, the gospel did not break through that facade. It's the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. They knew they were sinners. And so when good news comes along, this is something they want. But for people who have convinced themselves, I'm a pretty good person, the gospel has nothing to say to them. Whether it takes the form of prideful self-promotion or fearful self-protection, it in fact causes us to be something or someone that we are not. Instead, we spend our lives trying to present a false front, carefully crafting what we want presented to the world. Among the tragic results of living this way is that friendship and love cannot survive because there is no truthfulness. And a healthy view of ourselves cannot survive because the truth is not there either. So we've been talking about, in a sense, going through moral formation and sort of focusing on being a beginner in the early stages. What happens if you're at the later stages? What if, in fact, you have become mature as a Christian? That, in fact, you are generous because you have a generous heart. That you are compassionate because you have a compassionate heart. That you are kind because you have a kind heart. All of these things. Does vainglory still enter into the picture then? The Lord willing, this is what we will look at next Sunday. Because the vice of vainglory is not just for our culture of celebrity. It isn't just for young Christians or immature Christians. It's for those who are very mature as well. And again, the Lord willing, we will look at this next Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father, here we are on this Sunday. We've come to worship you. We want to worship you. And yet, if we would be honest, our hearts are less than what they should be. Perhaps we'd rather be somewhere else. Perhaps this seems too routine. Any other number of reasons. Perhaps our hearts are not engaged. But we are here by your grace. We are by your spirit hopefully growing, aiming to becoming like the Lord Jesus. May we not give up. May we not lose heart. May we not fear that hypocrisy has overtaken us. But recognize, in fact, that we are in process. You are, by your Spirit, shaping us and forming us and reforming us into the image of your Son. But there is always the danger of seeking to fake it for others' approval. The vice of vainglory, which afflicts not only us as individuals, but the church, and that's why we need each other to correct one another, to encourage one another, 
to recognize that we are all sinners and we are all growing. Again, may we not lose heart and may we not, in a sense, give up and just simply fake it, create a facade. But as disciples, may we admit our weaknesses, our mistakes, and seek to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. May we put on, may we clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus and become like him. As we look ahead to the new year, I ask that by your grace, this process would continue in each of our lives. Perhaps in some begin. But it's okay to begin. We have to start somewhere. May we acknowledge our humanness, our fallenness, but above all our dependence on you and on each other. I thank you that you've brought us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.